You're listening to an Irish Memory Studies Network podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the Irish Memory Studies Network. The network is hosted by the UCD Humanities Institute. For more information, go to irishmemorystudies.com. In this episode, the second of two keynotes from 1916, home 2016. This conference took place in University College Dublin in October 2016, I was hosted by the Irish Memory Studies Network, University College Dublin Humanities Institute, and funded by the UCD Decade of Centenaries Programme. This podcast features a lecture by Professor Marion Hirsch from Columbia University. The lecture, Epi Memory, Art and Action, was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. Professor Hirsch was introduced by Dr. Emily Pine, Director of the Irish Memory Studies Network. Hello, everyone. Um, it is... Absolutely fantastic to see such a full room and Mary and I were just remarking on the fact that it's a really good sign that people can't stop talking and that we have started something here over the last two days Um, and I know some of you could only be joining us now so welcome to all of you. Uh, To anybody who doesn't know me I am Emily Pine, I'm director of the Irish Memory Studies Network and on behalf of the network I am so honoured to be here introducing Marianne Hirsch. Um, as the final keynote of our 1916 Home 2016 conference. Um, Marion Hirsch is William Peterfield Trent Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University and Director of the Institute for Research on Women, Gender and Sexuality. She's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a former president of the Modern Language Association of America. She is one of the founders of Columbia's Centre for the Study of Social Difference and its global initiative, Women Creating Change. Marianne Hirsch is, of course, also one of the foremost thinkers in the world in relation to memory studies, focusing in particular on the transmission of memories as a vehicle um, for information about violence and violent pasts across generations. I know that many of us in the room are indebted to this work on memory and intergenerational communication, perhaps most significantly her work in the book The Generation of Post-Memory, Writing and Visual Culture After the Holocaust, as well as her other recent published work. I can't list it all, so I'm just picking two. Um, Ghosts of Home, co-authored with Leo Spitzer, and Rights of Return, co-edited with Nancy Miller. Marianne is currently at work on a co-authored book with Leo Spitzer, School Photos in Liquid Time, Archives of Possibility, and on a series of essays on the future of memory. Throughout these works, Marianne voices a recurring question that resonates with so many of the issues and core themes that we have been considering over these two days, issues of power, silence, and commemoration. Her questioning of easy empathy and the instrumentalization of the pain of others is summed up when she asks, how can we let the knowledge of past atrocity touch us without paralysing us? Today, her theme is epi-memory, art and action. Thank you so much, Emily, for this fabulous and generous introduction and for the invitation, uh, and to Mary and Emily for bringing us together and... uh, creating this really wonderful occasion for thinking together about silences in history and about the future of telling histories that are inclusive of women and other marginalized groups. Um, So what I'm going to talk about is pretty speculative, and I would love feedback on it as part of this series of essays that I'm just beginning to think about on memory and where we are right now after maybe 25 years of thinking about this. And um, as uh, 
Emily just said, I've been very preoccupied over a couple of decades now with how we inherit the memories of painful and violent pasts. And imagine how intrigued I was as an addict of serial television when one of my very favorite shows, Transparent, started to probe this very question. So first I want to know whether anybody here has seen Transparent. I'm uh, going to talk about it very briefly to see nobody. Yes. Please, thank you. I, I see that it's available to stream on Amazon in, in Ireland. It's now um, the third season just aired. Uh, but in the second season of this American TV series, uh, which um, the premise is that uh, the father of the, this very dysfunctional Los Angeles Jewish family in his 70s or around his 70th birthday announces that he's really a woman and that he is now Mapa and not Papa. Um, so, um, and um, in the second series, uh, the daughter, um, Allie, makes some urgent inquiries into her family's history, and she and her girlfriend go to visit Grandma Rose in the old age home. Uh, and it's a non-meeting. Grandma Rose uh, does not recognize Allie, but calls her Gershon. Um, in the TV, sh in, in the show earlier, had featured some unexplained flashbacks to Weimar Germany. Here are some of them. Uh, but we don't yet know when we see Ali going to the, to, to the old age home uh, who Gershon is, though we've heard about the aunt, Gittel, who turns out to be Grandma Rose's brother Gershon after his male to female transition. So this scene of failed recognition prompts Allie to embark on a research project that might enable her to connect what she calls, and it's central to the show, the woman question and the woman thing and the Jewish thing. She's trying to connect them. And the connection, of course, is trauma. Um, and it's inscribed, it's trauma that's inscribed on the body that's transmitted across generation in the form of the psychological dysfunction and gender dysphoria that permeates the show and that has now continued into the third um, season. Um, the, the transition of Morty to Mora um, repeats that of his uncle aunt, Gershon Gittel, just as Ali reincarnates the Gershon Gittel in the eyes of the grandmother. And the show's casting echoes these repetitions because it makes the generational interconnection palp interconnections palpable to the viewer. So after this meeting with this non-meeting with the grandmother, Allie, whom you see here, takes her research to the library. She's trying to figure out how to make these connections. And there she finds the science of epigenetic inheritance. And that's uh, what I found so um, intriguing here. She reads about the, the uh, very famous now cherry blossom experiment in which the grandchildren of rabbits that were exposed to electric shock after smelling cherry blossoms became averse to the smell, though they never knew of their ancestors' traumatic exposure. So uh, it's repeated. Uh, it's, it's remembered three generations on. This episode and its very determinative role in the plot of this show that's actually very daring and popular is only one instance of the recent popularity of epigenetics. And what I'd like to do this afternoon is to explore the implications of thinking about inherited trauma through the paradigm of epigenetics, and more specifically about the connections between historical trauma, its intergenerational transmission, and the arts. So very briefly, and uh, I can't pretend to really understand epigenetics. I've been doing as much reading as I can, and I've read, I mean, I'll recommend um, something for those of you who are not familiar. Um, but 
everyone who's you know read my work or hears what I'm working on is like, oh, you have to read epigenetics. And so I've tried, and I'll tell you what I've learned here. Um, briefly, epigenetics is the study in the field of genetics of cellular or trait variations that are caused by external environmental factors that mark not the DNA sequence itself, but gene expression or the lining of the cell. So epi, of course, means on, over, around, near, after, in addition. Epigenetic tags that are occasioned by environmental factors, it's now believed, are not erased between generations, as was previously thought, but actually they're heritable and they're transmitted along with DNA sequences themselves. And one of the studies that's been reported in magazines um, quite uh, widely is a study at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York in which researcher Rachel Yehuda established correlations between parental trauma suffered preconception and the epigenetic makeup of the trauma survivor's children. Uh, And significantly, Rachel Yehuda based this particular study that's been very widely reported, including in the British press, um, on 38 children of Holocaust survivors. And what she found is that, I mean, she, she controlled for traumatic experiences that the children themselves might have had. She controlled against demographically comparable subject, and she found that the epigenetic tags of the children of Holocaust survivor exhibited stress hormone profiles that showed a greater predisposition to PTSD and other stress disorders than those of peers in the control group. Now, I know all the humanists around here are going to be really skeptical about how meaningful this really is, because most of the research is still done on animals, I mean, really mostly on rats, but... um, or mice, but this is one of the human studies. Um, I think this uh, the increasing interest in epigenetics and the widespread press that Yehuda's study has received seems to me a symptom of a larger trend, which is the tendency to biologize and thus to predetermine the legacies of violent histories, locating them within the narrow cir- circle of, its, of the nuclear family and its repetitions. So while Yehuda's study attempts to control for contemporary traumatic experiences that might have introduced epigenetic tags in her subjects directly, I don't see how she could possibly control for other generational, cultural, environmental factors that may mark us in more indirect ways. And in my own work on post-memory over the years, I've argued that the intergenerational transmission of trauma transcends the bounds of the individual and the family relying on complex and multiple symbolic, effective, and embodied scenes of transfer that go, you know, that, that, that um, are more culturally, um, broad, more, more broadly cultural. So even within the intimate space of the family, transmission, I've argued, is mediated by broadly available cultural texts in, and inflected by familiar cultural tropes. So it, it was surprising to me that in a show like Transparent, um, which is premised on the Uh, possibility of bodily transformation across sex and gender through clothes, hormones, and surgery in a show where fathers become mappas and brothers become sisters and uncles become aunts, um, that the family per se should still remain such a dominant site of traumatic transmission. It really does not um, go out of the family. Why, as the family loses its gender composition, doesn't it also lose its dominance as a site of traumatic repetition? I think that the focus on epigenetics is, but, um, has been one reason, and I, I really actually think a promising development in the study of individual and collective trauma, because, on the one, because it corroborates testimonial and experiential accounts 
of the effects of inheriting memory and trauma across generation. But epigenetics as a popularized paradigm also raises a number of concerns. I've just talked about one of them here. In the popular imagination, at least, the truths promised by genetic and epigenetic research uh, have, have a kind of ultimate truth value, as we've also seen with neuroscience, and I'd love to talk to Una about this. Um, and uh, they have uh, a kind of ultimate truth value, and this is alarming because of the ways in which they exacerbate a kind of sense of an unforgiving trauma, repetition of trauma across generations. Um, I mean, it's alarming in other ways as well, I would say. They reinforce a sense of inexorable repetition of the past and the present and the future, a repetition in which injury uh, lives on, shattering bodies and minds and worlds in its wake. But scientific discussions themselves, not the popularized version but the actual ones, I think are much more complex than that. And uh, this is the book I would recommend if you don't know anything about epigenetics. I think it's... um, quite um, um, understandable. Uh, and if it isn't, uh, Eva Yablanka tells you which, which parts you should skip if it gets, <laughs> they get too, too complicated. Um, so in this work, um, Eva Yablanka and her co-author see epigenetics as one of four interacting dimensions of inheritance and evolutions. The others are genetic, behavioral, and symbolic. And as uh, Yablanka and Marion Lamb write, and I quote, information is transferred from one generation to the next by many interacting inheritance systems. Importantly, they show not only how acquired characteristics can eventually result in genetic variations, but they also show how, quote, behaviors transmitted between generations are tied up with cellular epigenetics. In other words, how behavioral and symbolic means of transfer impact biological systems of evolution and vice versa. Much of this research is still in its very beginning phases, and much of it is, as I said before, dependent on animal subjects. So it's not at all clear how biological evolutionary theories and cultural historical legacies interact. Um, But I think it's exciting that these interactions exist, and for me what's exciting is this multidimensional this idea of multidimensional inheritance systems that interact in very complex ways with each other. Sadly, in the book, the behavioral and symbolic uh, don't get as much attention as the genetic and epigenetic. So I guess here's work to do. Um, maybe team-taught courses would be a good way to try to, to tackle some of that. Well, I'm going to move away from epigenetics a little bit now. In my own work, what I've done is to look at aesthetic rather than epigenetic accounts of historical violence and its intergenerational transmission. Recognizing that the effects of trauma are necessarily embodied, I look um, at how bodily acts of transmission transcend the family and its predetermined roles. My goal has been to think about how the retrospective glance of trauma might be expanded and redirected to open alternate temporalities that might be more porous, more present-oriented, more future-oriented, and that also might galvanize a sense of urgency about the need for change and the means of activating it. And I think this is one thing we've been talking about at this conference. In fact, I've been especially interested in the aesthetic itself as a space of transmission. And here again, I've learned so much uh, in the last two days. I think that our acts of reading, of looking, and listening are encounters that foster 
receptivity, and responsiveness, as we practice openness, interconnection, and imagination, as we acknowledge our own implication in the works we read and watch and listen to, we necessarily allow ourselves to be open and vulnerable to be moved and touched. Through aesthetic encounters, we thus learn to practice attunement and solidarity with past or contemporary victims of violence. And I think we can also practice responsibility. And I'm thinking of responsibility not as blameworthiness, but in the sense, in the very helpful sense that the legal scholar Martha Minow has suggested as the ability to respond to the needs of the past in the present. So what I'd like to do today is to try to think further about these questions by looking at several works by women artists to begin to tease out the contradictions between the inherently embodied nature of violence and trauma and the challenges of transmitting these across subjects and generations within and outside the biological family um, in uh, both aesthetic and um, other, uh, through other means. What aesthetic media, genres, and tropes best create the conditions for an embodied transmission that might promote the possibility of action, change, and, re and, and repair? The works I'd like to look at, I think, will help me define a kind of epi-memory that is centered on skin and touch as both matter and figure of trauma's location within the confines of the individual body. And I've shown you some works that that use the tropes of skin and touch. In her classic essay on trauma and gender, Roberta Culbertson wrote that, quote, no experience is more um, one's own than harm to one's own skin, but none is more locked within that skin, played out within it in actions other than words, in patterns of consciousness below the everyday and the construction of language. Harm to one's skin, Culbertson insists it's outside language, it's incommunicable. And I'd like to say that some of the works that, that I'll be looking at, and of course some of the literary and theatrical works that we've been discussing at this conference would contest that claim because they are in fact communicable. Um, so I've been thinking about these questions for a while, um, and in an earlier um, article and book chapter that I wrote called Marked by Memory, I focused on the trope of the tattoo um, as a writing on the skin that figures trauma in its very incommunicability and untranslatability. But these questions appear different to me now in the age of epigenetic inheritance as a kind of popular paradigm, because while I was analyzing in these works, I was analyzing and criticizing children's, children of victims and survivors who over-identified with their parents to the point of wanting to be marked in the same way that their parents had been marked. Epigenetic science suggests that we are already tagged by our parents' tags, so I think we need to think further um, now. So if we don't want to fall prey to an unforgiving biological determinism, uh, I think we need to seek more open-ended and multidimensional tropes, figurations, and scenes of encounter with a traumatic past. Um, visual art, the art historian Jill Bennett writes, presents trauma as a political rather than a subjective phenomenon. It does not offer us a privileged view of the inner subject. Rather, by giving trauma extension in space or lived place, it invites an awareness of different modes of inhabitation. I, so it seems to me that scenes of artistic encounter can stage transmission as an experience in which the tags of trauma can be transferred and received by proximate or distant co-witnesses 
in non- or anti-mimetic forms of exchange at the cutaneous effective level, provoking effective resonances and responses. But what might make these resonances lead not to identification, appropriation, and mourning, not to repetition or even empathy, uh, but to solidarity and to action and to the possibility of transformation. I think that's been the key question that we've been talking about today, and I'd like to try to think further about it um, this afternoon. So I want to suggest that skin provides a way to think about these complex questions. And so my epi memory really has to do with skin. And that is because, as Jay Prosser has so helpfully suggested uh, in his book, Second Skins, skin is at, the, at once a site of boundedness and a site of social connection between bodies, the space precisely of being alone and of being with others. Skin is the very site of touch and of what Merleau-Ponty calls intercorporeality. In her essay, The Experience of Skin in Object Relation, the psychoanalyst Esther Bick shows how infants experience the mother as an enveloping skin, helping the infant develop an integrated contained self and a sense of inner psychic space. The sense of interiority and bodily boundary is dependent precisely on interrelation, and I've been also really interested in reading Didier Anzieux's book, The Skin Ego, um, which this is uh, a new translation of it, um, because his, in his notion of skin ego, he articulates precisely this dialectical sense of producing the sense of a bounded self precisely through a relation with the other. Um, he writes, by skin ego, I'm referring to a mental image used by a child's ego during its early phases of development to represent its, uh, itself in, as an ego containing psychic contents on the basis of its experience of the surface of the body. And he adds, the skin ego is the interface between psyche and body, self and other. So Bic and Anzieux both study what happens when the skin ego is damaged or impaired through maternal neglect or through physical injury or aggression. Um, so I'm interested in some of their work on this very thing. But in addition, and this often disappears both in biological, in, um, in psychoanalytic, and I think in, um, in um, cognitive science approaches, skin is also a site of social differentiation through the mark of color, of poverty, of illness, of injury, of disability, and other markers of social difference. Um, and because skin not only records experience and retains memory in the sense that epigenetic uh, of the epigenetic tag, it can also transmit it through touch and through a haptic visuality. As Juliana Bruno writes in her book Surface, surfaces are both container and membrane, places of contact, projection, and mediation between object and viewer. So let me try to unpack some of this by looking first um, at the work of the sculptor and artist Alina Chapochnikov. Does anybody here know her work? So she's a really underknown um, um, artist uh, who I think helps us to think about epidermal memory and transmission. Um, uh, Alina Chapochnikov was an adolescent survivor of the Holocaust who um, died of cancer in 1973 and was very ac active and totally forgotten woman artist 
who was in the French and Polish avant-garde in the 1960s. So you can imagine what she had to go through um, to, there. But before that, she endured multiple ghettos, concentration, and death camps, including Terezin, Auschwitz, and Bergen-Belsen, with her mother, who worked as a camp doctor, and it's thus that they survived. Um, Chaposhikov then studied and worked in Warsaw and Paris, and she never publicly discussed the horrific personal history that suffuses her sculptural work, work that alludes to, without naming, the camps, of course, but also a number of compounding personal catastrophes, illness, <coughs> infertility, finally breast and bone cancer that results from her use of toxic resins um, that she used in her, in her sculptural work. Um, her trauma literally resides in her body and literally destroys it. In Chapochnikov's cultural work, the marked body appears everywhere, communicating and transmitting what Griselda Pollock has so resonantly called traumas after affects. Uh, and Pollock has written very, uh, a, a really beautiful essay about Chapochnikov. Chapochnikov produces artificial skin out of resin and creates body casts that literally imprint her <coughs> works with carnal memories, engaging the viewer viscerally on an epidermal level with a powerful effective resonance. Critics have seen a process of undoing in Chapochnikov's work, and I, you can see why in a sculpture such as this one. Her retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in 2012 was entitled Sculpture Undone. And Griselda Pollock subtitles her important essay on, on Chapochnikov's sculptural dissolutions. Clearly, the skin that the artist manufactures out of resin cannot contain the injured body parts and memories that ooze out. And yet, I wonder if we couldn't see a different trajectory at work here, not one that moves unidirectionally toward dissolution, but one that performs at the very same time a process of doing and undoing, of solidifying and melting. Shapes in Chapochnikov's work seem provisional, contingent, ephemeral, and in some cases, vulnerability also seems to be um, cultivated, self-consciously assumed, even as it is undercut and playfully mocked. You see the influence of <coughs> surrealism in works such as this one. To be sure, Chapotnikov's sculptures take the ominous shape of seemingly oozing personified tumors and separate body parts of disturbing, wounded, wounding self-portraits consisting of black lips and breasts or body casts encased in lava-like eruptions, but they also take the humorous and playful form, um, and I don't have a, a slide of this, but she does these uh, chewing gum figures that are basically just you know pieces of chewing gum dish that she chewed that are then framed. Um, and uh, in, in the surreal, uh, sometimes translucent, lips, bellies, penises, breasts transformed into lamps, into omelets, into petit dessert, little desserts, just desserts, I guess, um, and into what she calls objet maladroit, awkward, literally unstraight objects. Um, and the other thing that I find very uh, interesting about her work is her combination of photography and sculpture, or her literally imprinting photographs on the resin um, of her work. And if you know the work of the French artist Christian Baltansky, um, who's a very well-known memorial artist. This is actually uh, Boltansky at age 18. He was obviously very influenced by Chapochnikov, though um, I haven't seen it mentioned anywhere at all, but he obviously worked with her. But, you know, there are um, 
I'm eager to find the humor and the provisionality in her work, but there are some works that are very hard to see in that way. And this is a series that she made of late sculptures that are entitled Souvenirs. Um, they're photographic imprints on polyurethane that's, that I, I think the most dramatic of her work. There's really nothing playful here. This work, Souvenir, which exists in several different versions, imprints two images. Um, one is a pre-war image of um, the photograph of the artist as a smiling young girl in a bathing suit cropped from an image in which she's sitting on her father's shoulder on the beach. So uh, what, what she does in the sculpture is take the father out and substitute a very well-known um, image of a, a dead woman from a concentration camp in the photograph and then recrops them to be this. And it's, I'm, I'm sorry, it's really hard to see. Um, so... Um, this is the open mouth and the silent cry. Childhood and the future that it signals um, encounter a devastating death that morphs and multiplies in this work. So what the artist does here is to connect a personal souvenir of a world before the catastrophe to a public memory of genocide, but the two can't be integrated as the father who holds her up as a child before the catastrophe becomes the maternal figure who is killed and who also kills. Um, it seems to me that she's responding here to Roland Barthes' famous phrase, photography tells me death in the future. Um, so indeed, by depriving the smiling child of the paternal support and by encasing her seemingly inside the skin of the genocidal death toward which she was looking as she was facing the camera, Chapochnikov gives indexical substance to that future death. And yet, she shows that um, you know, photos can be changed and transformed. And I think that's not immaterial here. Um, they can be reframed. In their sculptural form, imprinted on the contorted skin-like polyester <coughs> resin, they lose their sharpness, they become blurred, they become hard to read, and maybe they can also somehow resist the finality of the photographic take. The sculptural shapes in themselves become, appear, come to appear provisional. We can imagine remaking them, rewriting some of the stories they tell. This is her work called Little Tumors. Um, I think that the sense of contingency and provisionality in Chapochnikov's work, their appearance of always being in the process of melting and morphing, qualify what... Uh, Griselda Pollock has called uh, the traumatic encryption of, uh, of the work. I think this performance of always being in process could be seen, um, and you'll tell me if I'm stretching it here, as a form of resistance, however small, to finality and teleology, to the determinative reenactments of trauma and their orientation backwards toward the past. I think that to perceive these multiple possibilities of response opened up by Chapochnikov's sculptures, we have to be open not only to the epidermal touch of trauma, but also to imagining continuity, reformulation, and repair, even in relation to a life that ended up being as tragic as this one. I think that Chapochnikov is able to create a distancing space of potentiality in which we can look beyond the inevitability of repetition and annihilation. So I'd like to um, take this 
further by focusing on two public artworks, very recent ones, very different from Chapochnikov's. I think that if Alina Chapochnikov's sculptures can evade traumatic reenactment and re-traumatization, it's because of the gap that they open between mimetic repetition and aesthetic re-encounter. The surfaces of her sculptures might evoke skin, but they're not skin. Even as they draw us in, they interrupt and repel an identificatory and empathic uh, impulse by shifting from indexical to iconic structures of representation and reenactment. And they convey a range of affects and experiences, personal and historical, that I think elicit a complex set of responses from us as viewers. I'd like to um, follow that idea of um, indexical, the move from indexical and iconic back um, through these two other projects. And the first is um, Patricia Cronin's installation, Shrine for Girls, which was at the Venice Biennale in 2015. Has anyone here seen it? Has anyone been to the Biennale? You all are all so close. Um, <laughs> and... Um, the second one is uh, a participatory artwork um, that uh, took place in Pristina Kosovo football stadium to commemorate the rapes perpetrated by Serb soldiers against Kosovar women. Um, and this was just took place also in the summer of 2015. So um, both of these projects specifically call attention to the insidious effects and after affects of gender-based violence in different parts of the world, and both aim to move their audiences through the transactive power of art to work actively for recognition and change. And both of them use fabric and clothing as their media, um, and thus I think they mobilize the exchange of texture and the affects of touch in their projects. But they also reveal, it seems to me, some of the problems that such epi memories carry, especially if they're connected to violence against women, which at this point has become a kind of glo global cause around which activist NGOs and international government agencies have been able to rally, as some feminists have claimed perhaps too readily and at a cost. And I hope we can talk about the, the kind of narrow, narrower and broader ways that gender-based violence uh, has, is, is being addressed right now in a kind of global framework. And I think these two works raise, raise that question in interesting ways. So let me just first talk about Shrine for Girls. It was installed in a deconsecrated Chiesa di San Gallo, the smallest church in Venice, built in 1581, and as you see, an absolutely beautiful, stunning space. The, the church has three altars, three stone altars, and the American artist Patricia Cronin arranged items of girls' clothing she collected to commemorate three specific crimes of gender-based violence. The central altar displays colorful saris worn by girls in India to call attention to the rampant acts of gang rape and murder um, there. On the left, Cronin mounted... Um, on the left altar, Cronin mounted a blue and brown pile of hijabs that represent the two, 276 Nigerian schoolgirls who were kidnapped by Boko Haram in Nigeria. And where am I? Um, on the right, there was a large pile of uniforms recalling the clothing worn by girls and young women who uh, were institutionalized as forced laborers in the Magdalene asylums and laundries in Europe and North America, including, of course, Ireland. 
In each case, the clothes were connect, collected in the specific locations where the crimes occurred, lending reference authenticity and aura to the exhibit. Clothing items, of course, can serve as witnesses to the scenes of the crime, if not always to the crimes themselves, and they are the outer layer of skin that both contains and communicates deeper wounds of violation. Entering the dark church to visit this shrine for girls, the visitor is prepared to participate in a ritual of homage and ceremonial observance. In the dark interior and the magnificent beauty and elegance of this small church with its sacral aura, the unexpected appearance of the colorful piles of fabric is certainly unsettling. We have to move right up close to see the photographs, very small photographs, uh, sitting on each of the altars, photographs depicting each of the three scenes of violence against girls that, is, um, you know, th that are very small in relation to the rest of the space. Next to the heap of clothes, the photo virtually disappears. Our experience of this work is sensual rather than visual. But once we walk through the space and gaze at the photos, we begin to appreciate the magnitude and reach of the violence facing girls across history and geography. As the catalog says, the clothes have become the protagonists of a spectacle staged for us here. The clothes materialize the photographs. They give them dimensionality and texture. They evoke the bodies that wore them or might have worn them. Metonymically and indexically, they stand in for those bodies, recalling the crimes those bodies suffered and poignantly underscoring their absence. Their texture demands touch, and um, through them, by wanting to touch the clothes, in some ways we're touching the wounded girls themselves, who thus become proximate <coughs> objects of empathy and compassion. How do you deliver strong content that might change minds and unnumb viewers? The artist Patricia Cronin wandered at a recent panel discussion on the legacies of rape uh, last fall. She says that she sees the architecture of spirituality and the meditative lighting as crucial elements that would move visitors out of complacency. I think it's debatable. But what are the implications of constructing a shrine for the victimized girls and to locate it in a church? Cronin deliberately chose victims from three different world religions and housed them under the same roof, highlighting connections and resonances between them and making sure to... Um, locate violence against women in the Christian first world as well as Hindu and Muslim third world context, and I think that's certainly important. But can sacralization and heroization move us to action and change? Is it appropriate to construct these girls as martyrs? Perhaps in the original sense of the term martyr that is witness, but not, I would think, in the sense of the martyr's singularity of his or her deliberate religious or ideological stance, and certainly not of heroism. Cronin rightly, I believe, qualifies the martyrdom by saying, quote, since the bodies weren't treated with dignity while they were alive, and their bodies are missing or murdered, I consider the girls as martyrs and their clothing as relics. Unlike religious martyrs, however, there's no glory in their death, no otherworldly triumph. So she does make sure to tell us that. But it seems to me that the church setting does introduce such an otherworldly quality. And um, on the altars, the, these clothes do appear as relics. So I think that even though she wants to qualify it, she hasn't actually quite done it. So, of course, there is a way, form of action that's 
provided for us, and I'm sure you can guess what it is, because as you leave the church, you're invited to donate money to several humanitarian um, organizations specifically concerned with gender-based violence. And we learned that the artist herself has donated 10% of her earnings to these organizations. As one reviewer of the exhibit writes, the exhibit moves us from tears to action. Um, well, it seems to me that um, there's a num there are a number of problems here. Is this enough? Um, does, um, does the exhibit um, move us to uh, what earlier we talked about? What, what was the term about empathy that was so good that Tom had? Uh, hmm? Empathic quietism, uh, or um, how are we acting when we leave this exhibit? I think as we turn back to look at the altars one more time, as I did here in my own photograph, we realize that there might be a larger invitation here opened by the messy and provisional arrangement of the clothing and the seemingly random selection of the three sites that are observed. One might think, well, these are just three places we could redo this exhibit in our own communities. We might be able to use some of these same strategies um, in our own um, in our own work. Uh, so I think that in these impulses themselves might lead us to wonder whether art can dislodge trauma and mobilize political or legal strategies of repair, or what, and whether it can do so as Cronin does from the outside what avenues of political action and accountability might be opened by such uh, aesthetic encounters, especially if the, if the venue is the Venice Biennale, right? That, that really then puts a whole completely different spin on things. So just for contrast, I want to end with uh, by talking a little bit about this uh, project, Thinking of You, which I think begins to address these questions on a large social stage um, from, and this time from the inside. It's the project of uh, Alketa Shafamripa, Kosovo, and I'm sure I'm botching her name, a Kosovo-born artist residing in London, produced in collaboration with a New York-based political theorist and Kosovo specialist, Ana Delelio. Together, what they did was aim to bring recognition to a long-standing history of ethnic warfare, in part carried out on the bodies of women. Specifically, they aim to call attention to the estimated 20,000 Albanian women, 6% 6, 6 of the female population of Albania, who were systematically incarcerated, humiliated, and raped by Serb paramilitary during the Albanian separatist war against the Milosevic regime. I started, and you'll recognize the language here, I started questioning the silence, the artist said, um, how we could not hear their voices during and after the war, and thought about how to portray the women in contemporary art. Attempting to compensate for the legal impunity of the perpetrators, the absence until recently of rape as a crime of war from the ICC, and the post-war silence of the victims, the artist found a medium that would involve broad-based participation around the country. So she traveled through Kosovo and collected 5,000 dresses and skirts donated by survivors and by other women and men. With the help of dozens of volunteers, she then hung these on clotheslines in the Pristina um, football stadium on the anniversaries of Pristina's liberation by NATO forces after a three-month bombing campaign by the Serbs. In an interview in London, she explained her choice of medium. 
air dirty laundry in public is always a way of saying talk about your private issues in public. But in this case, the laundry is washed clean, like the women survivors who are clean, pure, they carry no stain. 45 clotheslines with colorful dresses um, and skirts across a football stadium, a symbol of masculine competition and sociality, are striking and beautiful, powerfully resignifying the space, it seems to me. And yet, the anniversary event itself was only a small part of this durational artwork. The donation and collection of the dresses throughout the summer, the moments of embodied exchange of clothing and stories, the networks created, all worked to combat silence even more effectively than the installation itself, bringing communities of women um, and men together to exchange the gift of a dress or skirt to speak openly about their own or their relatives' abuse, to hug and offer one another support and remembrance, is, it seems to me, a large-scale act of repair. The film that the artist created to document the process shows women and men gathering in numerous public locations across the country to exchange the clothes, to hold them, to fold them, to um, care for them, while listening to each other and becoming attuned to the stories that the dresses themselves tell. Many came forward to emphasize that they are donating their favorite dress or one associated with crimes in their family. Mothers and daughters traveled together to donate embodying acts of uh, familial transmission. And the artist received a lot of these herself, acting as a kind of repository. Uh, and she visibly performs in the film the affects evoked by the donations. She cries in sympathy. She hugs people. She holds the people coming forward to tell their stories. And um, to give this project a maximum prestige, she also invited celebrities to donate. The film features Kosovo's former woman president, ambassadors, actors, first ladies, many ordinary women discussing what the project means to them. And a running theme in these comments is the president's, who says she participated to say to the survivors, you are not alone in this, we are all together. And this line is repeated over and over in the film, um, and where the victims are referred to as martyrs who sacrificed for our country and who deserve, as the participants say over and over, empathy, solidarity, and acknowledgement long overdue. But again, it's not surprising that this widespread encounter is staged around the recognition of violence against women and uh, one wonders if this has become a rallying cry that's become easy uh, to adopt from Mumbai to Pristina, and what else it might include, what multiple forms of precarity and their interaction that this kind of gesture might leave out. And here is one moment in the otherwise uh, very overly, I think, celebratory film gives one a pause because it introduces a note of skepticism about the efficacy of the project through the voice of an elderly women's rights activist. She says, I'm giving this dress for the women and girls who were assaulted by a, cer by a certain weapon, rape. Through the campaign, through your campaign, she says to the filmmaker, society has been made aware and victims have been given a voice. However, the problem remains that they don't know the perpetrators. In order to identify the perpetrators, there should be political action, political and diplomatic pressure for Serbia to uncover its police, military, and state records so that we know where the military bases were located. Thus, we could then convene trials and seek social justice. And you know, I think the relationship between art projects such as this one 
and legal redress and social redress are um, is something that we really need to think about. So, you know, I, I, I want to end by asking the question that we've been asking, what do activist participatory memory projects like thinking of you accomplish? I think they can neither substitute for legal redress or economic reparation, nor could they, can they compensate for the lack of it, even if it might appear as though they're doing similar work. Nevertheless, I would suggest that beyond the celebrity photos and the slogans about empathy and solidarity, something important is being exchanged as Kosovo citizens came together in acts of epidermal touch and exchange that are staged in this project. Transmission of a traumatic history occurs here across class, across gender and generation, across space and time. As dresses are moved from the closet to the football stadium, Trauma is dislodged from the confines of individual bodies, of individual skin, and individual families. A painful past is being brought into the present socially through gesture, touch, and affect, and also through digital acts of transfer on YouTube where this film can be seen. Um, the dresses become symbolic as well as indexical signifiers. And with this greater acknowledgement and dissemination, Possibly something in the society is being dislodged, and one hopes that this transformation will include space for legal efforts to bring perpetrators out of impunity to justice. Uh, one hopes that as people talk about violence against women, as they respond to that violence viscerally through touch, they can also come to a deeper understanding of the political and economic power structures and their responsibility, not just for gender violence, but for the violence of war and ethnic conflict more broadly. So I want to leave you with this idea of um, epi-memory as an exchange, um, and a visceral uh, transmission of trauma as a space of containment and connectivity at the same time, as a medium of memorial transmission that... I think um, involves mutuality, that involves uh, vulnerability, that involves transformation because of the um, interaction of different inheritance systems that uh, interact in many mul multiple ways and therefore do not leave trauma in a static place but demand change and hopefully also demand action. Thank you.